Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Matt Furman serves as the Chief Communications and Public Affairs Officer at Best Buy, where he's been since 2012. Matt is responsible for communications, both internal and external, as well as government affairs, CSR, and community relations. In addition, Matt manages event planning and Best Buy's in-house production studio. Before joining the Minneapolis retailer, Matt held the Vice President of Corporate Affairs position at Mars Chocolate. Earlier gigs included communications leadership positions at Google and CNN. Matt worked in the administrations of Bill Clinton and Rudy Giuliani as well. A graduate of the American University School of Law, Matt is a licensed attorney and has been a member of the Journalism and Mass Communications adjunct faculty at the University of Minnesota. In this conversation, Matt gets into why storytelling is more important than data, as well as the importance of championing truth in matters of DEI. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Best Buy CCO Matt Furman in conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer. Hello and welcome back. This is Paul Dyer with Lippy Taylor, and I'm joined today by Matt Furman. Matt is the Chief Communications and Public Affairs Officer at Best Buy, a position he has held for the last eight years. Matt, thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Matt, I wanted to actually um, jump in by connecting this conversation with a really interesting uh, conversation on this show just last week with um, Jeff Kuhlman. Jeff is the Chief Communications Officer at Bentley Motors. He spent his whole career in the automotive industry. And so he emphasized the importance of getting to know the business you work in. And he actually de-emphasized the importance of the general communications industry and gatherings like the Arthur Page Summit, things like that. Now, you're someone who has worked in a wide range of industries. You've held leadership roles at CNN, Google, Mars Chocolate, now Best Buy, very different industries. So I'm curious for your thoughts on the importance of pan communications industry learnings versus really focusing on the industry you're part of. Uh, I think you have to be knowledgeable in the industry you're part of. I don't think you have to be that way on day one, though. So if I was encouraging people on what kind of communications experts to to hire, I would take people who um, show the ability to adapt to multiple surroundings, multiple cultures, and perhaps even multiple industries. I would do that on two bases. One, it showed that they had the capacity to learn, which no matter what industry you're in, they always change, and therefore you need to be able to learn. And the second is that you could adapt to cultures. And the reason that's important is my experience, perhaps yours has shown, the person you come to work for is not always the person you wind up working for, which means you have to be able to adapt to a different culture or a different leader. Uh, and multiple industries, the ability to move from one to another demonstrates that. And culture is something that's been brought up a lot this year as companies have been you know, tested um, in terms of how they communicate with employees and manage their culture through all of this change and difficulty. One of the common themes we've heard a lot on this podcast has been communications leaders emphasizing the importance of internal communications. Has that changed in terms of your overall prioritization as well this year, or is it um, something that's always been you know top of the pyramid? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Best Buy is a, a company that's always endeavored to be a good place to work. In fact, at a investor day late last year, we laid out three goals for 2025 to, to Wall Street. One of them was to be named one of the best companies to work for, which demonstrates more clearly than anything that we've cared about our employees and therefore internal communications. That has not changed. 
through COVID, it's just become more complicated. It's become more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So you're based in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, Is the majority of your team there with you in person or are they spread around the world? How is that structured? Uh, We are a North American company um, and the vast majority of the team are based in Minneapolis. There is a smaller team based in Canada and they work directly for the Canadian business leadership. And one of the things that we've noticed has been the move to remote work um, in many cases has been more challenging for companies that were not um, dispersed to begin with, right? For companies that were accustomed to being in person together in the office. So how has that transition been for your team? Uh, actually, I see it just the opposite. In, in an odd way, I would say the friendships and relationships and comfort that we had with each other when we were working so closely together have inured to our benefit in a virtual world. We're all still very close and the familiarity and the, um, the ability to finish each other's sentences has served us well in a virtual world. That's great. And that word relationship is really important. You know, when you think about culture and, you know, employee engagement, et cetera. Um, What about the relationship with marketing? So on the agency side, um, we're seeing it's a complete, everything is getting blown up right now, right? So the PR and communications firms uh, in many ways are doing better than they ever have, while the advertising side of the business is forecast to lose over 60,000 jobs in the next three years. So a lot of this relates to sort of the the changing and convergence of the media landscape. What is it like at Best Buy? How are you structured and has it been in flux recently or is it something you guys had already sort of had figured out? Uh, So the uh, CEO has several direct reports. I'm one of them. Um, The head of marketing at Best Buy reports up to the chief administrative officer. Um, And so we are uh, separate in that regard. Uh, and have been for my entire tenure. Before I arrived at Best Buy, that was not the case, but upon my arrival, that was. Um, With that said, I've never seen a company or worked in a company where communications and marketing are more seamlessly integrated. Uh, We're not integrated by hierarchy or org chart, but but by common purpose and really by friendship. We all like each other a lot, respect each other a lot, understand each other's jobs, and are able to support each other in ways that I just have not seen anyplace else. That's great to hear. And speaking of hearing, I'm not sure if you're hearing right now, but of course there are leaf blowers in my background. Aren't there always? You, you can never you can never forecast when that's going to happen, except if you're going to be recording something. Aren't there always? Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned um, the relationship and the friendship there, but also you know a lot of CCOs speak about a larger responsibility for communications as a catalyst for action within organizations. And that's really been brought to the forefront during this time period. So I'm curious about just your perspective on how the role of communications has changed and how you've been able to act as a catalyst for the broader organization. Yeah, we've taken as one of our primary goals as a, as a function to protect and enhance the reputation of Best Buy. And at the essence of that, you're talking about um, uh, issues management. Um, the ability to address known issues in ways that mitigate the risks of the company or better yet, enhance the stature of the company. And then just as importantly, anticipate um, reputation issues that may be coming. I have a small team devoted to doing just that, helping us guide through current issues and see the issues around the corner. Once you do that, the communications 
follows pretty naturally. The hard part is understanding what kind of mess you're in or could be in, or better yet, understanding how you could come out of it with a greater sense of respect from your customers and your employees. You know, that's great. It sounds very clear and simple when you say it. Um, it probably doesn't feel necessarily so simple sometimes when you're in the midst of it. Um, you yourself have worked in the belly of the beast when it comes to crisis, not just at Best Buy, but uh, in particular, working as an advisor to the governor of Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina. Right. So first of all, can you just tell us what that experience was like? And then I'd love to, to talk more about if there's any sort of universal frameworks or principles you like to apply to crisis. But first of all, just what was that experience like? Sure. So earlier in my career, I worked in the, in the government, both in the administrations of um, then Mayor Rudy Giuliani uh, and uh, former President Clinton. Um, I've been to many, many different kinds of disasters, many of them complex and large and awful, nothing compared to Katrina. Katrina was devastation on a scale we had not ever seen and thankfully uh, have not since. The, um, the thing that I learned there was that the ability to communicate was as important as the ability to make the right decision. The governor in that case, a woman by the name of um, Kathleen Blanco, made the right decisions time and time again, but her ability, sadly, to communicate those decisions was very limited. And as a result, she was not perceived to be a strong leader in the wake of Katrina, even though her decisions were truly remarkable and almost always right. So the ability to make the right decisions isn't always enough. Um, there's also something really interesting in the coming down of the, the sort of traditional walls that separated the audiences we would communicate to, say, back when Katrina happened. There were certainly stronger walls between your investor audiences, your employees, your customers, you know, et cetera. Um, versus today when everybody can kind of hear the same thing. And you have to pretty much plan that anything you say is going to be repeated to all of your audiences. How has that changed, you know, in, in, in your experience and through your career, the way that you think about communications planning? Yeah, it's interesting. The thing that's changed the most in my view is that there was a day when you could convene, practically speaking, all the people that matter, tell them your story and whether they believed it or not, they would transmit it in some form. You could reach scale. Now, because the universe is so scattered and so balkanized, scale is very, very hard to achieve. If you think about trying to put out a fire, a viral storm, uh, it is whack-a-mole times 10 in a way that it didn't used to be. And so what you hear from people like myself, when I talk to colleagues around the country about how do you deal with a viral storm, often the answer is you don't. You simply duck and wait for it to go away. Um, that would have been unthinkable in a time of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and now is a very viable strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about that a little bit more of, of crisis in the corporate setting, right? And issues management in the corporate setting. Are there any frameworks or principles you like to apply broadly, or do you have to just kind of take each one as it comes? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few. The first is understand the facts understand the source of facts. What I've come to learn is that the people who tell you what the truth is sometimes are really telling you their truth. Um, you have to understand that. I've watched companies and I've watched myself get the short end of the stick because I relied on something that I believed to be factual when really it was more hope than it was fact. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you speak to 100 people 
a third of them didn't listen, a third of them forgot what you said, and the other third didn't believe you. And so you got to speak and you got to speak again and you got to speak again. In the effort to reach scale, as I just referred to, what you really have to rely on is repetition more than anything else. And then finally, understanding that as it, unlike it was in my early career, where you really focused almost entirely on the media, now, first and foremost, we think about employees. If they're not with you, if they don't believe you, it doesn't matter whether you win the battle externally, you've lost internally. It's you really need to make sure you understand what their concerns are, you need to address them, and you need to be truthful. Those are actually really a lot. It's, it's more than I could have ever hoped for in terms of simplicity and clarity. Although I'll say that your third, third, third model is a little bit disheartening there. Uh, you know, in terms of people who like to communicate according to the script and things like that. That's right. So, it's okay to use the script. You just got to keep using it. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so let's, I guess, talk about a way in which we are in many, in many ways being asked to change the script, right? And that is the communications functions um, role when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion for the broader organization. Um, it's a you know big theme is, around the companies who are doing the work here is to be more transparent, talk about where they are in the journey, and then sort of put their money where their mouth is when it comes to decision-making and things like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about what your strategy has been you know, in this area? And um, are there any sort of more broadly applicable learnings from that? Yeah, in keeping with the admonition that most of all, you need to be truthful, uh, we found that any discussion about race needs to start there. And of course, given the fact that the leadership of most organizations, not just companies, but organizations around America is largely white, um, being truthful starts with understanding that you, by definition, almost certainly, not in every case, but almost certainly have fallen short. And so at Best Buy, we took a very truthful, very straightforward approach, which is we care about this topic, but we acknowledge we need to do better. And what that does is it gives you two kinds of freedom. First, it puts everything on the table. And in fact, we said that in a letter to customers from our CEO, everything is on the table. And it also gives you permission to uh, answer the question when confronted with some failure or shortcoming, which all too often occurs, is to acknowledge we said we need to do better. It allows you to stop being afraid of your shortcomings and your failures and begin to embrace the possibilities. That's really well said. So um, shifting gears a little bit, retail has historically been seen as a leader in the field of data and analytics. Do you feel like that extends to the communications function as well as sort of a first part of a two-parter here? Uh, I personally have taken a very different approach than I think the vast majority of my peers. I've resisted data and analytics. Um, I, I don't have any illusions that we are a science like marketing. Um, I think the sentiment analysis is much harder to achieve in our, uh, in our sphere. Uh, and I have taken the view that um, a good story is well known, well understood, and a bad story is too. That generally speaking, people know when a crisis has been well, well handled and they generally understand when it hasn't. And no data is going to support or refute that view. And so I have not tried to engage very deeply in data. I mean, we do at the, at the level that it matters, but it is not the bread and butter on which we rely. Well, to your point about starting with honesty, I think that that's probably the honest truth for a lot of your peers, no matter how they would have actually answered the question. <laughs> Maybe they're being more truthful of you than me. 
don't, I don't know about that. I, th- I think that that's exactly the truth, what you just said. So um, what about when it comes to, so you report to the CEO, right? So you're evaluated on the overall success of the communications yes. function. Yes. Um, so how would you describe the way in which the, the function is measured in the eyes of the CEO? Uh, well, I'm fortunate enough to have a portfolio broader than communications. I also have public affairs, so there's that. Although I would say the, the answer is roughly the same. Um, I think first and foremost, our CEO cares that our employees are um, well cared for. That is, they know what's going on and we know what they're thinking. Um, we can serve uh, appropriately as a canary in the coal mine. So we're giving advice, we're giving warning when we think things might be going awry over celebrating early successes when they may not be well seen. So I think that's the first thing. Secondly, externally, um, they want to understand that our message is being told well and consistently and with effect. Um, We try to actually move the needle. We have a view that we can actually help the business. The business thinks of us that way, excuse me, (laughs) thinks of us that way when there is something to be said that can actually grow revenue. We're looked upon as a resource, which I think is a great place for communications to be and is not it's something that's earned, not given. Uh, and then finally, on this reputation management perspective, uh, what the CEO and the senior leadership expect, as do I, is that my department serves as a early warning of things to come so that we can brace for it, adapt, or actually, uh, in, um, we can actually take advantage of a circumstance that's coming our direction. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you opened that, that door as well, because a lot of the conversation so far has um, centered around the communication functions job and protecting the brand versus promotion and publicity. Um, so is that by design? Is, is you know brand protection sort of first and foremost, the way you wake up in the morning thinking about and promotion comes second? Or is it, how do you think about those two things? No, I think we um, have the capacity, we've demonstrated the capacity at Best Buy to actually, as I say, move the revenue needle. Um, on a very consistent basis. We earn media uh, we know works. That's why it was invented and that's why it stayed around as long as it has. It works. Uh, The vast majority of the resources are devoted there. The vast majority of my time is spent there and the vast majority of the benefits of the company is there. However, you always need to have a uh, a fire department because sometimes things catch fire. Uh, And so we have a very good fire department. It's cross-trained. So the very people pitching are also the people putting out fires. Um, but that's a secondary job most of the time. A much, much smaller group of people is dedicated to seeing the horizon and, and dealing with things as they're developing, as they're bubbling. When they pop, everyone rushes to the fire, puts it out, and then goes back to try and driving revenue. That's great. There's There's been a, a large, there's a big theme in the communications industry right now around earned creative, right? Which is the idea that you can come up with ideas and activations and campaigns that are themselves just sort of so, you know, so witty or so clever that they spawn their own news coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, you've obviously now also referenced, you have people on your team that they, they know the press and they know how to just through relationships drive coverage. Curious your thoughts on those two things and the role of earned creative, is that is that a fad? Is it something you're focused on? Um, versus sort of the more tried and true relationship building? Uh, Earned creative is not a phrase I'd heard before, but that's a perfect descriptor of what we endeavor to do. Uh, we have lots and lots of stories to tell. We, te- we sell products that people love 
that give them real joy, real entertainment, real connection, real productivity. Um, our mission as a company is to enrich people's lives through technology, and we have the ability to tell that story. And we do it by actually telling stories. Um, a measure of success for us is, uh, is one, can, that, can those stories pop externally? The second one, which is really delightful, is that very often, you know, a, a couple of times a quarter, the stories that we find and tell are actually used by our marketing colleagues in paid marketing. That's great. Now I got to tell you, I'm going back a couple a couple minutes ago when you told me that there was that there was no science in what we do, like there is in marketing, and everything you've answered since then feels like there's some science to it. But so, completely different direction now. Um, maybe maybe I'm the one who's just not a scientist. How about that? <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> right. Um, so, this has been a tough year for for a lot of people in America. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, even in our industry, have ended up out of work. Um, and so, one of the questions that comes up frequently is, as we're talking about increasing the appeal of our of our industry and bringing more people of color in and things like that as we're talking about getting people back to work conversations around reskilling and developing people into sort of more hireable you know employees so what advice would you give to people who are trying to make themselves more marketable as a candidate more hireable you know communications so people who are current communicators or people who want to be communicators which one uh, you know, that's a good clarification. Um, I was thinking current communicators who are who are out of work, you know, but are looking for ways to make themselves more, um, you know, more hireable. Uh, well, I, the way, so I, I've limited um, insight, but I'll offer what I have. What I've seen largely is that there are division among communicators that's, being, that's been established or being established. And that is those who consider themselves communicators in the social sphere and those who consider themselves communicators in a more we'll call traditional sphere. Um, I would say first and foremost, if you uh, choose one, you should probably cross train or cross reference the other. Being uh, offering diversity, being able to do both simply makes more sense in a time of limited resource. I can hire one person to do two jobs versus one to do individually. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is uh, as always, the ability to write. If you're not a good writer, now's the time to become one. And like any skill, you can learn how to write. Um, and then finally, I think the thing that is um, always in short supply, at least in companies like ours, I should have said at the very beginning, we don't have any, I don't outsource any of my work. Uh, I don't have any agencies working on us. We insource at all. And I think that's increasingly becoming the case, at least in different um, industries. Um, the ability to actually manage media, to have media skills. So if you've done that at any point in your career, emphasizing that in your resume or in your conversations, I think is particularly useful given resources are limited. And it would be nice to be able to hire someone who can write and actually also manage media. That's great. And while you're right, the insourcing trend has certainly been you know, more prevalent in the last um, you know, handful of years than it was before. There's a lot of brands out there they're trying to wrap their head around how far should I go? Should I insource everything? Are there only certain pieces of it I should insource? Or is there other things that are more valuable to outsource, et cetera? So for those brands, it's pretty rare probably for them to hear from somebody who's been able to so completely manage all of the capability, insource everything. What's your what you know, what advice would you give? What what are your thoughts on some of maybe the pitfalls or the opportunities from insourcing the whole function? 
Yeah, when I joined Best Buy uh, eight years ago, the company was uh, on a downward slope and might have died. And so our decision to insource was instigated out of necessity. I simply had to cut money. Now, it was consistent with my view that if I was ever given a chance, I would try and build a team that could do what um, agencies could do, but better and cheaper. Uh, and it turns out that's exactly what we did, but it began out of necessity. The, the advice I would give you is whatever money you're you know, giving back in my case, or whatever money you're trying to negotiate, make sure you get some money to hire. You can't do it without more or better headcount, more or better or both. Um, you need the right people. Um, the second thing is you, have, of course, have to invest a lot of time in their training. Um, this is not something that comes quick. You're not going to be able to hire an A team off the bench right away. You're going to hire C or B players and then develop them. Um, and then finally, um, you want to begin to value speed more than you do now. For those companies that are relying on agencies, what they will have gotten used to is a slower speed than you will have if you have it in-house. If you have it in-house, you say it and it happens. And you now you lose things. You learn, you lose some experience. You lose some uh, feet on the ground. You lose some you know, muscle, but you gain experience and it really becomes, a excuse me, you gain speed. And so it just becomes a matter of what you value more. My advice is begin to value speed a little bit more than you did because it'll diminish the disappointment you might feel elsewhere, at least initially. Eight years later, we have an in-house agency that can do anything and they're as good as anyone. So I've not given up anything. In the short term, I did. That's really, really insightful. You're reminding me there's um, a woman named Becky Brown who's kind of the number two in marketing at Intel. Um, and she's um, been pretty widely known for saying um, fast and good enough beats slow and perfect every time. <laughs> so the yeah. the emphasis on fast and good enough is um, well taken there. Yeah. So just one final question here is, you know, as, as, and it's sort of, broad, you know, but if you think about the mindsets, right? So you've talked about hiring people and training them, but there's sometimes there's a mindset, right? In terms of how you get people to all row in the same direction or how you want them to, to view the work together. What are the, what's the mindset that you think is most important for success right now? Um, I think there's two, and I don't know about how it works for other people. I'll tell you uh, within my team. The first is resourcefulness. Uh, we're not a very, we're Fortune 100. Um, but we're not a massive team compared to many of our peers. You need to be resourceful. What does that mean? You need to be willing to take on jobs that you haven't done before, model your behavior on what you've seen, and then learn how to do it yourself. So for instance, all of our spokespeople are my team. We don't have other people doing it. When we do TV interviews, it's my team. And so I'll have 23-year-olds doing broadcast television. Um, the first five times, they're not great at it. So we start them out in small markets. But by the 10th time, they're pretty good. And they're doing the Today Show. So that's, you know, that, that's the first thing. You got to be resourceful. You got to be willing to try. And then secondly, and this one is much more theoretical, but I think it's important. I have a strong view that a job is more than a paycheck, which means we come to work for things more than just the money we make. We come to work for experiences and opportunities and relationships. And so I think you need to have a mindset that tells you that I'm here at Best Buy or fill in the blank any other company to get something more than just the money. I want to be enriched by it. It sets the right tone, it puts you in the right position, and it makes you open to possibilities you might not have otherwise been open to. Well, Matt, I can't imagine a better place to end the conversation than that. So <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, maybe that was purposeful, <laughs> but right. that was a great place to end. And thank you very much for all your insights here today. 
All right, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Matt Furman. Number one, consistency is the key to communications. Matt very elegantly stated, if you speak to 100 people, a third of them didn't listen, a third of them forgot what you said, and the other third didn't believe you. And so you've got to speak, and you've got to speak again, and you've got to speak again. The statement speaks for itself, and it's a true testament to how the job of a communicator is never truly done and how comms workers need to take note of this. Repetition is the key to scaling the efficacy of any communications campaign. Number two, not everybody is convinced data and analytics have a central role to play. Matt has resisted the prevailing industry view that communications can be understood scientifically the way that marketing can, which is why he employs data in a limited fashion at Best Buy. The main reason, he says, is the difficulty of measuring sentiment in a communications context. For him, when a good story is told well, it'll be recognized. Similarly, when a crisis is handled well or poorly, people will know it and they don't need data to convince them. Number three, with matters of DEI, put everything on the table. The road to better DEI standards and practices can be daunting, but the best and arguably only place to start is with your own company's truth. Stating up front where you know you need to do better not only inspires trust and faith in your employees and customers, but allows you to not be paralyzed by the fear of your own company's shortcomings since you owned up to them up front. It may be uncomfortable, but any discussions that lead to lasting change have to start with the truth, regardless of how hard it may be. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.